And I looked at him by that time, he had a gun pointed at me. That's pretty much the last thing I remember, and I lost the use of my legs instantly. There was no question about it. So he fired a shot, I didn't know where I was hit at at the time. I was shot, and I'm paralyzed, but why me? So you go through that season, absolutely bitter with God. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, an Associate Licensed Counselor and Nationally Board Certified Counselor in the state of Alabama under the supervision of Cotina Stroud. The Real Talk 238 podcast has real conversations concerning taboo topics, which people may find themselves struggling with that may not be discussed, especially in relation to the church. The purpose of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to bring awareness, hope, and encouragement. Having these conversations will shed light on the truth and break the lie of being the only one, being stuck, isolated, and alone because there is someone else who has gone through something similar. Topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and is intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to jump on real quick before the interview is released today. This podcast is not for young audiences. So if you have children around, please listen with your earbuds in or with some headphones or just wait till later when you have some time where your kids aren't around. Today's episode, I'm interviewing a friend of mine from church. His name is David, and he just has such a phenomenal testimony. I think you will thoroughly enjoy this. It's facing one of the most adverse situations that you can imagine and coming through at the other side. So I think you will enjoy this. I do have an announcement. So if you'll just hang tight, listen to the announcement, and then the interview will start right after that. But again, please do not listen to this episode around young children. Have an awesome day. Are you a minister or the wife of a minister? Do you ever question what you would do if someone in your local congregation is feeling suicidal? Do you know what signs to look for if someone was feeling suicidal or had a history of trauma? Do you know what to do or how to approach an individual who has been impacted by someone close to them who has completed a suicide? What many people do not know is that suicide impacts over 800,000 people worldwide every year. Well, now until February 15th, 2022, I, Denise Lee, the host of the Real Talk 238 podcast, will be conducting a free training for those who are ministers or the spouse of a minister. This can include a pastor, a pastoral team, the church leadership, an evangelist, or a missionary. Topics that will be covered in this training is appropriate terminology to use, what the risks of suicide are, the facts versus the myths surrounding suicide, how to identify warning signs, how to identify the protective factors in relation to suicide, how to recognize compassion fatigue versus what burnout is, how our brains and bodies respond to trauma, 
how to recognize signs of either unhealed trauma or an individual who has not disclosed they've had a trauma history. Appropriate questions to ask in cases of either trauma or suicide. Necessary steps to take when someone has suicidal thoughts, has a history of trauma, or is struggling with compassion fatigue. Creating a mental health team in your congregation. Steps to take after a suicide has been completed. And then aftercare for the individual whose family member, church member, or someone on their pastoral team has completed a suicide. This training will consist of four hours and going to cover both suicide awareness and prevention and trauma-informed care. And it can take place either virtually or in person. This training is part of a research project that is a requirement of the education specialist of the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program that I am currently involved in and taking at Jacksonville State University. To participate in this training, you must be 18 years of age or older. You must be involved in ministry of some capacity, and that includes those who are licensed. It can also include those who are not licensed as ministers. They must also complete the required documents that go with this training and a two-month post-training follow-up interview. If you are interested in the free training for ministry, please send me an email at info, that's I-N-F-O, at liferecoverycounseling.com stating you would like to sign up for the training for ministry on suicide awareness and prevention and trauma-informed care. You can also find the information on the Real Talk 238 podcast Facebook page. Now, let's get started with the next episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast. Hey everyone, thank you for coming today to listen to the Real Talk 238 podcast. I am excited about my guest today. His name is David Moultrie. He is from Alabaster, Alabama. He's a manager. He has two children and he attends New Life Church, which is also where I go. And he's been in church for the last 17 years. And he serves in ministry as a greeter. And he describes himself as being highly motivated. He loves to interact with people. And I can attest to that. He definitely does. And he strives to be an inspiration. And I will just say he definitely is inspiration. He's a hard work. He's caring and honest, forgiving and humble. And last but not least, he is a man of God. And a fun fact about David is that he loves challenges. Thank you, David, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And you, sis? I'm awesome. Doing awesome. So one of the reasons why I asked you to be on the podcast, because every time I see you, you have a smile on your face. And you just like, hey, how you doing, sis? How are you? And it's, I mean, it's just so encouraging. But the other reason also I invited you to the podcast, because you're in a wheelchair. And for some people that can be really challenged, and I was just wondering if you would like to share your story today, your testimony. I'd be happy to. About how long have you been in a wheelchair? It's been 20 years now. Uh, January made 20 years. And what was the reason for the injury? Because I honestly, I do not know. Yeah. I honestly don't know much about your story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I suffered a gunshot wound uh, through the neck, uh, which caused my paralysis. A gunshot wound. Through the neck. Yes, ma'am. How old were you when that happened? Uh, had to be around maybe what, 22 at the time, maybe 22 or 23. 
so I turned 43 this month. So I had to be what 22, I think 22 at the time. I was turning, I turned 23 that following May. But yes, I was 22 at the time. 22, 23 years old. Prior to this, I don't know if this was an accident or purposeful. I'm not sure. But prior to that, what was going on in your life? My life, well, actually, it was a life without Christ at that time. So I come from the inner city. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, pretty much a single parent household. I met my dad for the first time. I was maybe 33 or 34 years old. However, I came with a household. The, um, the man that helped raise me pretty much was more financial support. Mom, she was acting as a mom and dad. So again, I have one sibling, an older sister, I love dearly. Yeah, so we grew up, it was a humble beginning. Grew up in the inner city. So I say the poverty stricken areas. What you saw every day was pretty much poverty. However, mom did her best to bring us up in the church. I knew every Sunday we expected the little bus come around and pick us up, uh, be prepared, put on my little cute little clip on bow tie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I little slippers off we went to church, you know. How old was you? when you were very aware that we're going to church? Well, probably around the age of maybe seven, eight years old. Yeah, seven to eight, vocation Bible school, you knew it. Like Sunday morning, you knew it. It was customary that you get up Sunday morning, eat breakfast, wait for the bus to come pick us up. That was, hey, that was our life. You know, probably around maybe seven, eight years old. Mm -hmm. So what was going on in your life, I don't know, late teens, early 20s? Well, late teens, well, we moved to the neighborhood, the west side of Birmingham. It's called Powderland. And once we moved to that area, Things begin to spiral probably around about the age, maybe about 13 or 14 years old. As they say, you like start smelling yourself, has turned away from the church pretty much and living her life. No knock on her, but she only gave me the tool that she was given to raise my sister and I. But she did a great job of raising her, but nevertheless, when she turned away from the church, I think that was pretty much the moment things started to go wrong. Of course, obviously, God must be the foundation. And so around about maybe 12 or 13 years old, of course, grades started to drop. I uh, did well up until like the fifth or sixth grade, you know, uh, A's and B's. Then all of a sudden, again, started feeling myself. And so about 12 or 13 years old, again, we moved to the new uh, neighborhood. And that neighborhood was full of drug activity, game banking, and just poverty-stricken environment. Pretty much after that, I became, not only just was hanging out, it went from hanging out to becoming, actually becoming a part of it. But again, I was just, as they say, a product of your environment. That was a decision I made to be a product of my environment. I could have done otherwise. So at that time, you actually joined a gang or got completely involved in it? Yes, yes. By the age of probably 14 to 15 years old, I was initiating a gang. So it was, again, it was logical at the time because everyone that I saw and the guys that I looked up to was doing that. So again, it felt logical to do that. Drop out of high school and hang out in the streets and do those things. As far as like gang initiations, what yeah. would that look like? Well, basically, what it is is just like you have a gang that you have a guy that may like come along and say new to the neighborhood, and likely depends on what neighborhood you come grow up in. You have the Crips, Bloods, and Gangsta Disciples. So pretty much, it's like initiate. You may go through a series of things depending on the geographical area. Someone may put you to the test where you may have to do drive-by shoot. You might have to go out and just prove yourself. You might have to go out and jump on somebody. It might have to, it's just violence. It's full of violence. And that, of course, obviously, that them be proud of, or they just may just jump you in, where you might have to get in the circle, group of guys, and just jump you in. That's a form of initiation. It's different forms of initiation, and that was my form. Where it was just being jumped in, where you had to fight and hold your own, and show that, okay, 
I belong. Basically, just have to earn the trust of organization, if you will, if you want to call it that. I have heard like a lot of gangs, one of the reasons why it's so attractive, but it's because it feels like family. Exactly. Jackpot. So you have this kid that may come up in the inner city, single parent household. That's prominent in the, in the inner city. Sad to say, but that's, that's the reality of it. And most of them are just single parent household mothers are being acting as mother and the father. Well, that kid, sometimes that boy, he's looking for love, obviously, but he's looking for love in all the wrong places. And so what happened is his environment become that ideal. So the idea, you look at guys, they, they hustle. You look at guys that selling drugs. You look at gang bang. So what happened was the older guys will come pick you up from school and you like riding in the car with them. Sounds in the car, what we call sound with the music is loud and strong. You have rims on the car and you felt like, wow, look at me. You know, so you picked up on high school with the older guys. And that was a sense of love, like sense of family when it's truly not though. It's falsified. It's a moment, it's, it's circumstantial love. You know, it's not consistency. There's no consistency. If you, some of the very people that you're close to can be the very one that hurt you. That young boy, he's looking for love. Even a young lady for that matter, she's looking for love. So she want that. So guess what happened? They tell you, I love you. That's one of the codes, like love, life, loyalty. One of the gangster disciples where they go by, love, life, loyalty. Love stand out. So you hear the word love and you don't really understand what love is. But again, you're looking for a father figure that man figure, so the guys that are around you, the older guys become that ideal. When you look at them, like try to model their behavior. And before you know it, you're not only just modeling it, you become that, exactly what it is though. You mentioned a girl. Mm -hmm. When she's trying to find that family, that family life, what does that look like for her? It's pretty much almost about the same. They grow up, they're looking for the family life. Again, to go back to the function of will, because we know our will is the most powerful thing on this planet. So it's her will, like, okay, she's looking for that. So the old girl's like, so she may be riding the guys and girls, like, okay. And it's just an environment is so, inf it's infected with that, that every corner you go on, you're seeing that, right? So the bloods were red, the crisps were blue, the disciples were black. And so she's seeing that. And she's not anchored in being better for as a person and the household, because I came up in a good household. That individual had to be anchored in, okay, I'm going to be better coming out of this environment. I'm going to come out. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be an engineer, whatever it may be. If they're not anchored in that, it's so easy to get caught up in that environment. So easy. And so what happened is she just started hanging out before she knew it. She, she wearing her little rag and so forth and so on and claiming whatever the set may be. So it's different. And then a lot of time, oftentimes, they have sex with the gang members. So it's a lot of things, man. It's just, it's an ugly situation. It really is. It's part of her initiation because you said she'll have sex with gang members. Yep. Is part of that her initiation? That has happened in the past. Yes, ma'am. That's still, that, that happened. And I appreciate that information, that insight. So you get involved with a gang. How far did it take you? You spiral. I mean, because it's just like that lifestyle is like nothing pretty. There's nothing really to brag on. It's just like it's an ugly situation because now I got this individual. I've been taught, so I'm being brainwashed to say that guy's the enemy. Now, this kid grows up in a different neighborhood than me. He happened to be a blood, right? So he come in the environment where they were red. So he become a blood. I'm a disciple. He's now the enemy all because the environment that he's growing up in. Nothing more. I don't even know him. So guess what? The drive-by shooting, I was a part of all that. Again, just terrible situation. Being shot at on a regular basis and friends being shot. It was funeral after funeral. So we would go get a shirt made up and that was just common for us to get a shirt made up, pitch on the front, celebrating, guess what? Another funeral happened. And a week later, it was over and over. It was a vicious cycle. So I saw a lot of things that I'm certainly not proud of. 
and just grace of God that I'm still alive and being here in this podcast with you is man, short of a miracle. So like I said, I've been through so much in that street life, which you may have seen depicted on in the movies or documentary. That is real. That is true. That is not something make-believe. That is how it happened. They will shoot at you with your mom, grandma. It didn't matter. They just don't value life. Once you're involved with that, you have to prove yourself. You're constantly trying to prove yourself. You have some that's a little bit more notorious than others. You got some that's known as, okay, this is the one that's known to do drive-by shooting. This is the one that's known to fight. They have different ranks. It's quite troubling if you really think about it. It's, it's horrible. I did my internship with my practicum. I did it at a psychiatric hospital. As you're talking and I'm listening to your experience, the patients I worked around were adolescent females. A lot of anger. They had a lot of severe trauma, a lot of sexual trauma as well. But what you're describing about like the ranks, I was seeing that in the psychiatric hospital because a lot of them, they were abused or they pretty much got thrown away by their family. It was a really sad situation to watch because that's all they knew and that's all they were taught. So you were about 13 when you started getting involved and then a lot of activity that having to prove yourself. Were there any time between the time that you got involved until you got shot, you thought maybe God is trying to get my attention? I remember my days, or maybe one particular day anyway, I was walking. I just walking down the street one day and I happened to just look up. I was just like, wow, wow, this is amazing. I just had a moment with like, man, something created this. And I just remember that clearly, like just walking and looking up and looking around, like something created this. Because I looked in the sky and the clouds and the trees, etc. And I was like, wow, that is amazing. I just had that moment. Again, I remember it like yesterday. It was like God was speaking to me in that point. And granted, now I was young. I was a teenager and I was off in the streets, deep off into the streets at that time. I think we've all had those moments, definitely. So let's fast forward to right before when you got shot, right before like maybe the weeks or the months leading up to it. Was there anything going on, maybe out of the ordinary? Because obviously this is your normal, ordinary life. This is what you're used to. Whereas with somebody else, that would not be their normal, ordinary life. Was there anything that was out of the norm or out of the ordinary that looking back that you think about is like, oh. Nothing out of the norm. Leading up to that, living a normal, wild lifestyle, if you will. I was working at the time at McDonald's. At that point, I had started slowing down a little bit. I started mature. I was more interested in making money for us the right way at the time. And a new clothing line had just came out. I was really, really interested in the clothing line. So I was working out, made sure I had that clothes every time it came out. I was, actually, I was in the mall to buy it. At that point in time, life began to change just a little bit. That on the day I was shot, nothing out of normal, a normal argument with a friend that I grew up with, got that I hung out with, got that I did the club hopping with, run the streets with, you name it. That was my guy from being in his home and being treated as a sibling by his mom and vice versa. So he and I got into a verbal altercation one day, nothing physical. So normally what we would do in the hood, we'll argue and that would be that. We'll go your direction, I go mine or we'll fight. And normally it don't escalate to no further than probably words. And even you later on, you go along, you get high, whatever, what have you pass on. Uh, well, this particular day he went and got his gun and he just came back for this, for whatever reason, he had a lot on his plate a lot on his mind so he came back and got his gun i left with another friend of ours to go pick some kids up it happened to be his kid his kid mom needed a ride 
And we went to pick her up and took her to go get the kids. Before you know it, we dropped up kid, dropped, took her to the house and dropped the kids off. Lo and behold, he was following us. He hops out the car and he, he was in a rage. He was just, I mean, this guy, he was just in a rage. I remember like yesterday. And I looked, I was like, wow. So we left and he followed us. So by this time, we kept riding maybe a couple miles or so in. Lo and behold, he pulled him beside the car. He had someone else driving. His girlfriend was driving at the time. And he pulled beside the car with the gun hanging out the window, like, pull over. It was just dramatic. It's so real. Like, he's hanging out the window, gun in his hand. Pull over, pull over. Again, he's in a rage. Just a simple argument. I don't even know, like, how could you even get to that point? In my mind, I'm saying, okay, why is he doing this? So anyway, we pull over. By that time, he gets out the car, comes to the car. He slams her phone down on the ground, breaks it, and shatters. I was sitting in the back seat. He comes to the back seat, and he has a gun in his hand. He's talking. He's not necessarily looking at me, but I know it's directed at me. And he kept going on about how he feel like people think he's a chump. And a friend of mine that was driving said, hey, man, why are you doing this? Like, why are you tripping? Like, because it never, ever come to this point. Again, and I'm in the backseat. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, this guy got a gun in his hand. He has cocked a hammer on the gun. And I'm looking like, okay, of course, I know what's going to happen. There's a friend, like brother friend. Like, if you saw me, you knew he wasn't too far away. If you, I'm telling you, you knew we were somewhere close by proximity. Either we hung out the night before, I had just left his present, or likely we're going to meet up at some point. That was a friend like that. Anyway, I answered the car, and before I know he had returned to his car, and I remember just looking up. And before I know I had a gun, I like, I kind of, I think I giggled and laughed. I'm like, wow. But I was just totally outdone by the fact that he was behaving in the way he was. And I looked at him by that time, he had a gun pointed at me. That's pretty much the last thing I remember, and I lost the use of my legs instantly. It was no question about it. So he fired a shot, I didn't know where I was hit at at the time. He regretted it immediately, though, because he came to me crying. So I'm on the ground, here I am, my mind said, get up and walk. Well, of course, obviously I'm paralyzed. So there's no moving from my Lord. Actually, no moving at all, period. He tried to pick me up. He had his girlfriend to pull around. He's crying. He's hysterical. He's trying to pick me up and put me in the car. I'll never forget that. But I'm like, dead weight. He's crying. I mean, when I say he's crying, like boohoo crying, like baby crying. Spreaded immediately. It was like his emotion got the best of him. He didn't want to pull the trigger. He was just like, oh, no, I just wanted to scam. Before you know, he had pulled the trigger. He was terrified. And I, he did his best to put me in the car to try to take me to the hospital. And pretty much the last night, I remember hearing the sirens and, of course, I was wake up in the hospital. What did recovery look like? In the hospital, it's normalcy, right? So you see people with like situations go to therapy. That was a day-to-day routine. You go to therapy, try to find your way from the simplest thing, like put on a sock or transfer into the tub. And you're seeing people with like situations, like you're looking at them, you're like, okay, well, he's going through that. She's on crutches and he's on a walker and, you know, things like that. It's just like common. So you see it and you're going through therapy because everyone is there pretty much have an injury or suffering an injury trying to recover. That was the process, though. But, of course, I couldn't speak. I couldn't speak for the first two weeks. I stayed in the hospital for a month. Had to wear a halo on my head for, like, three months. So in the process of learning everything all over, I got this halo on my head that's preventing me from leaning over like I want to. I turned my head left or right. Just imagine the challenge. So it was just the smallest thing, just putting a sock on seemed like, yeah, it was enormous. Like, wow, you want me to do this? And I'm, like, upset. I'm, like, yeah, angry. Like, I thought my therapist was the meanest person on the planet. Well, you're going to do it. Just push yourself. And you get to the point of, like, push yourself down the hallway. I'm like, what? I mean, just going down the hallway seemed like <laughs> just like running a mile. <laughs> I'm like, what? 
that. So anyway, you go through that transition. Then, of course, after a period of time, they say, okay, you're good to go home. You see that you're able to swallow and things like that. Because of the injury to my neck, they had to make sure I, had, I was able to swallow. They take you through a series of tests to make sure you're able to swallow some kind of solution. From that point, they release you. I really, I was released exactly a month from the time I, I went into the hospital. Wow. And that was a lot of work. And this doesn't even compare at all. I had to have minor surgery. And when I went in for surgery, I was walking fine. When I came out of surgery, I wasn't walking. It was minor surgery, but what they explained to me was just my legs had went to sleep and they wasn't working at all. So when you talk about that physical therapy, I think they are mean. But I think also too, they probably, it's not that they're trying to be mean because they know they're trying to get you to as, as far as possible as you can go to prior to whatever, you know, the injury or the whatever the case may be. But yeah, mine, I think mine was mean too. And it was painful. I'm appreciative now, though. Again, they go back to those challenges. That was a part of my life that God was refining me. And I was just like learning in that moment that through those challenges. Like I said, I love to be challenged. And I look back on my life, had I not been challenged in the way I was, guess what? I would have never been able to do the things that I do now. It has its challenges. I appreciate it now, but at the time, I did not appreciate it. During any of that, did you ever go through a period of being angry at God? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You go through that season of being angry with God, you're angry with everyone in your, in your circle. So you question God, like, why me? Okay, what did I do wrong? And so then you begin to compare your life to others' life, lifestyles. All right, so now in my mind, here I am being judgmental and say, wait a minute, that guy worse off than I am. Why not him? So you go through that season of, okay, well, he was only shot in the hand. He was only shot in the arm. So that's, my, that's out of mind running. He was shot in the leg, but I was shot and I'm paralyzed. But why me? So you go through that season, absolutely bitter with God. How did you work through that bitterness and anger? Because that's a challenge. I worked through it. And the time in that season I was in, drugs and alcohol was a suppressive. I came home from the hospital, of course, going through the phase of trying to find my way and learn life all over again from a paraplegic standpoint. I began to go to the club more often. Drugs and alcohol was my escape from the reality of my condition. So I would just case consume alcohol, just pop pills. The pills just given to me for pain. I would just abuse it. So I'm throw two or three of them in my mouth. So that take me to a whole nother place. I don't have to deal with this. And before I knew it, I saw spiraling off into a depression. The moment I became depressed, of course, dealing with the reality of being in the wheelchair, now I'm depressed, really just in a bad place. So, of course, now at this point, I began to contemplate suicide. I remember owning a 32 gun. It was 32 revolver. I hid it from myself at first. I was like, okay, I'm going to hide. It was clear as day. The enemy was telling me to put the gun up and blow my brains out. And I was like, well, I'm just going to hide it, right? So the devil was like, yeah, okay. Well, now go up on the bed and get it. So anyway, I will take it to another place. And he was like, yeah, we'll get it out of there and do it. So I'm hiding from myself to keep from killing myself. Because had I kept it on the bed, I knew I would have blown my brains up. I got to the point where I said, you know what? I'm just going to sell a gun. In fact, I didn't even sell it. I just got rid of it. I just gave it to a friend of mine. I've got who exactly who I just gave it away. Like, huh, you can have that. I don't want it. I went to my doctor and I told my doctor what I was experiencing. And she was like, yeah, you're dealing with clinical depression. And she gave me Zoloft, like an antidepressant pill. I remember taking a pill. And I was like, man, this sedated feeling I have. I'm like, I don't like this feeling that I have. No, 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 no. This this not going to do it. And we had a conversation with my sister about how a lot of people be dependent on the medicine and so forth. So I said, no, I'm not going to be dependent on that. And I got rid of it. I just threw the whole pack of pills away. But again, coping with depression, anger. So everything was my escape going for. It's the jewelry, the clothing, the alcohol, the drugs. 
all that defined me at the time because I had a lack of self-worth. Didn't understand my situation, questioning God. So now I'm like, lack of self-worth. I'm like, okay, now this is my worth right here. My jewelry. Look at my clothing. So let's go to the club. I go to the club. My guys push me around, push me in the club. And let's go somewhere and sit down and just, now look at me. Hey, got my jewelry on. I look good, right? Hey, I'm standing out. I'm a giant. And I get home the following morning, I wake up, I'm this little bitty grasshopper. Giant intoxicated me, full of drugs. I'm a giant. Then I wake up, reality's still there, the chair's still sitting there. And I, I am this little bitty grasshopper now. Little bitty me. And what happened was, I found myself, uh, my son was an infant at the time. And God began to speak to me, like remind me of, about being in the church. And God told me, he was like, just cut the radio on. And I remember putting it on the gospel station. I remember holding my son and he was in my arms. And I just began to cry. I just began to weep. Tears rolling down my face. I'm just crying. I'm like, wow. When I'm listening to the gospel station, I'm like, in awe. Wow. God told me to cut the radio on, like cut the gospel station on. And at that time, God was assigned investor to my life. And I knew God was like, yeah, I got him right where I want him. I got him. He's depressed. I know he's mad at me. He seemed like life is over. Good place. I got him. He don't got rid of the gun. Now it's time. I got him. And so listen to that gospel. When I began to cry, I think that those tears prayed for me in that time. And God saw my weeping. Dispatched an angel man and he assigned a vessel to my life. And that vessel happened to be a guy that ran the streets with me, got into church. He changed his life. So your friend that used to run with. Yeah. And you knew all the stuff he had done. But then here he comes and he's in church. I mean, like, what was your thought? Now, mind you now, I had this moment where God tell me, already and all that i have my little moment it passed away right so i'm not thinking about it go on back to drugs back to party like a rock star the whole night he shows up every sunday eat dinner with us that was but of mine good friend of mine he was a good friend of mine before he got saved good friend of mine so he would show up every sunday but i noticed it was something different about him though i would lay in the bed out new rap song came out i go get the album I was like, listen to this and he was just standing he would just look at me and listen to me. and i know i was just out of my mind but he never passed judgment, though. He played so cool. And I just would watch him. Every time we would come on a Sunday, it was something different about him, though. Different than what the other people, my friends, the family members that would come in the room. When he came, it was something different, though. He was just still, they had a sense of peace about him. He had a sense of joy about him. He was just humility all over him. Obviously, it was the joy of the Lord that was all over him, the God's glory. But yeah, every Sunday he came, and I saw it. And he did it for a while, strategically. Every Sunday he would come. He finally said, hey, man, come to church with me. I'm like, I don't do that church stuff, man. I don't really do that. You know, I'm like, man, I don't want to go to church. Like, what are you talking about? Go to church. I'm like, come on, man, you enjoy it, man, you enjoy it. All right, man, I go. So I go to club. Yeah, I am still. I mean, go to church. But I go to club hopping the night before. So he'll come Sunday morning. Knocks at the door. I ignore him. He calls the phone. I ignore him. The brother come around. I was knocking on the window. Hey, come on, get up now. I'm like, geez, sometimes I go to the door. Saturday night may have been a long night, and I wake up, and I'm like, well, I ain't going to make it today. He's like, okay, I, I, we'll see you next week. Like, this dude right here, like, he turn around the next Sunday. Here he, he is again. I'm like, all right, dude, I, I'm going to go. I, here, I, I'm going. Finally, I started giving me a little clothes to wear to church, but I had nothing to wear to church. All the clothes were just, you know, I'm just crazy. I want to be have nothing casually put on, let alone talk about the suit. So I'm like, finally give me a little, little suit and all that, and I just go and. And I remember being in church, I'm home and things felt different. Okay, go to church again, it felt different. So it got to a point where I called him on a Saturday night. I'm like, hey man, you can make sure you pick me up. He's like, yeah, man, I got you. He was so thrilled. He picks me up. I remember having a Sunday, having a moment in church. 
Hi, I'm still selling drugs. I'm club hopping. I'm in the church. So at this point, you're still selling drugs. Oh, I'm still selling drugs. Oh, yeah, I'm out here. Wilding out. I was still the whole nine. I mean, the whole nine. There's nothing has changed in my life. I have no plans of serving God. None of that at all. I'm only going to church because he's inviting me. The guy is absolutely relentless. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to just go to please this dude. God like, yeah, all right, you can go to please him. I got you. So I kept going, and before I know it, I was crying. So here I am in church crying, and now I'm embarrassed because I don't supposed to be crying. Roll me outside. He rolls me outside. I'm boohooing. I had my moment like a kid. He looks down at me and say, hey, man, God is doing something in your life. He knew in that moment. I didn't know. He knew in that moment. He's like, oh, yeah, God is doing something in your life, man. God for to change your life. I never forget his words. He said, God is doing something in your life, man. He stood there. He comforted me. He put his arm around me. And he, he just stood there and allowed me to just weep. He knew in that moment, like, okay, this is this is it. This is a moment. Something's happened. And from that moment, all life began to shift. So I'm still club hopping. My friends come pick me up the following week. I go to the club. Everything that I look at was awful to me. So I'm looking at it. I'm like, riding past the club, it was a common thing on the Saturday. We go club to club, go hang out, you make car, get out the car. And I'm riding. I'm like, why is he doing that? My mind said this now. She be doing that. What are they doing? Why is she dressed like that? Why he doing it? So I'm like, just take me home, man. Home. I said, you want to go home? I said, yeah, I want to go home. I went home and I picked the Bible. So I began to read it. Now this moment, we just transitioning. God just did it. It was an encounter. I'm like, I don't even want to be a part of that no more. I just felt bad. I was so uncomfortable in that moment. It was just something that was calmly done in an instant though. It was just changed just like that. Like, I no longer wanted to be a part of that. I was like, I want to be at home. And from that point, of course, I continued to go to church. And I remember moving into an apartment, my first apartment. I woke up one morning and I had a moment of just, God is good. God is good. I remember waking up crying, tears just rolling down my face. God, you're so good. I began to testify. I picked the phone up. God said, now call your mama, call your sister, and apologize for your behavior as a teenager. I picked the phone up, called my mom. Mama, so sorry. I'm just crying, boo-hoo. Mama, so sorry. Everything I did, I'm sorry. Sorry. Call my sister. Sis, I'm so sorry with everything I did to you. I was out of line. I'm so sorry. Called my cousin, Declare. And she said, well, you've been anointed. Now, I'm telling you, sis, it had happened so suddenly that I know what anointed meant. I remember her saying it, but I'm like, anointed? What is that? I said, boy, you've been anointed. She said, I'm telling you, I, I be around church folk. I said, boy, you anointed. I just testifying about how good God is. I'm talking about, I went three way with my cousins. And they listen to like, dude, what's up with this dude? Within a period of a week or two, I went from club hopping to talking about Jesus. What did your mom say? She just was in awe. So just think about it. Imagine a person that you know. You know them. You know their lifestyle. So she like, yeah, baby. Okay. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking because I'm thinking about my, my two <laughs> boys. And I'm like, okay, how long is this going to last? <laughs> I'll be like, okay, babe. Okay. Uh-huh. So she didn't, actually, she didn't probably know how to respond. That's good, baby. She said, well, baby, you know, I love you. Yeah. So she wanted like, why in the world is he doing that? She probably, of course, I was testifying about God. Of course, she probably said, like, okay, I know he started going to church. Maybe he's just having a moment. Somebody preached the word, and now he's on fire. He want to come home and tell everybody he's sorry. And Christ told me I need to forgive. And I call, let me call everybody and tell him. It was not the case at all. I just woke up on him. I'm talking about it was during the week. I wasn't working at the time. I remember the weekday, clear as day. As you're talking, I got chills, like goosebumps going up and down my arms. I'm like, woo. 
God is amazing. What about your friend that had shot you? He served like 17, 18 years. During the process, a friend of mine, actually the guy, the vessel that came and got me in the church, he called me one day. He was like, hey, the guy that shot me named Kiki. He said, hey, Kiki want to talk to you. By this time, I had God had dealt with me about forgiveness and all that. I said, give him my number. And he paused. He was like, you sure? I said, yeah, give him my number. During that period of anger, I can only imagine, like, he was probably the main one. Yeah, dude. Like, he said, oh, he said, you sure? He asked, he had to ask me, like, was I sure? He had to make sure, like, okay, you sure about that? I said, yeah, give him my number. Because I had already forgiven him. So he gets on the phone. He calls. Me. I look at the number. Offer me your number. Answer it. Hey, hey, man, it's Bishop. I say, man, what's up with you? He just went right off the tour. Man, I'm so sorry. I messed up. I messed up. Man, I'm sorry. That should have never happened, man. I'm so sorry, man. I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I stopped it. I said, bro, look. I said, you got to forgive yourself. I said, stop right there. I said, you got to forgive yourself. I said, bro, my life is good, man. I'm in the church now. God is doing work in my life. Life is good, bro. I said, but you got to forgive yourself, though. I said, in order to get you some rest. I said, no, I'm just forgive yourself, bro. Get you some rest and move forward with life. And pretty much at that point, he struggled with forgiving himself, obviously, because he had harmed his friend, man. A friend that he grew up with and he was around, close butt of his, rather, should I say. It's a struggle to forgive, forgive yourself after doing something like that, knowing that I'm the reason why he's in the wheelchair. Over the course of time, he called me. We spoke maybe three or four times. Around the time, the government reached out to you. The state reached out to you and asked you a question concerning if you're a victim. They say, okay, well... Individuals coming up for parole, how do you feel? And the lady called, told her just like that. I said, well, man, I'm going to tell you like this. I said, my life is good. I said, he's been forgiven. I said, it's totally on y'all. I said, I'm not coming down now. I said, you got my approval to let him go. I said, he's been forgiven. I said, it's up to you guys. I said, no need for me to show up, you know, here. <laughs> I said, I'm good. My life, I'm moved on with my life. And he called me shortly after that. I told him, I said, I spoke with the lady and told her, I said, you're free to go, man. I said, now, I want you to understand what you get out, you may hear he say, she say. All right, so you're hitting it from the horse's mouth because you've been forgiven. And the most important thing that you get out and focus on your family. Don't focus on what's going on in my world because I'm good. I said, get out, focus on your family. Again, forgive yourself, man, so we can move forward. And I remember him telling me because prior to that, he and I had that conversation. I prayed with him on the phone. And he told me the last conversation, he said, man, he said, dude, I still just don't understand. He's like, dude, the guy that I shot caused paralysis, praying with me on the phone, telling me that God is good, telling me what God can do for me. He's like, dude, he said, I don't understand. I said, yeah, bro, that's, that's God nature. It ain't human nature. This ain't me, man. I said, it's God. Again, he got out. He was released from prison. I saw him in the neighborhood. First encounter, he came up to the car. I had my, normally my process, I put my wheelchair on the passenger side, take the wheels off. I put him in the back seat and I put my wheelchair on the passenger side of him. He came to the car on the passenger side. He said, hey man, what's up? I dabbed him up like we normally do. And we talked about life. Now mind you, he's talking to me, but he's leaning off in the car and like tapping the wheelchair. So he's like tapping the wheelchair, talking to me. He's not even conscious of what he's doing. He's the reason why the wheelchair is sitting there. He never acknowledged the wheelchair. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to know that he was good. I was good when I knew he was good. No need to acknowledge the wheelchair. It's done. Let's move on with life. And he and I talked. And I saw him a few times after, a few more times after that. Never talked about the wheelchair. He never went to the spiel about, man, forgive me and all that. And that's powerful, too, because I know I know not everybody can do that. I mean, that really does. It, take, it takes God to be able to forgive somebody. 
because I want to please God. So my mission is to please him. Now, I may fail. I'm going to stumble along the way. Have I failed God? I've been in the church, absolutely. Uh, but there are certain things that stand out to me. I think it's important that we tap into that. Oftentimes, we have conversations about you know, salvation. We have conversations about lifestyle. And kind of like we really don't talk about forgiveness that much. I think it needs to be discussed more in the body. God want to do more in our life. He can't really move forward because we have resentment and unforgiveness in our heart. And I look back at my life. I'm saying everything I don't done wrong. He nailed all that to the cross for me. Here I am walking around with unforgiveness and I won't forgive my brother. But here it is. I say, God, I love you. And I hadn't even seen him. How can I say I love God? And I see my brother every day and walking with unforgiveness. I can't say I truly love God. I, he forgave me everything I don't done. All that was nailed to the cross. I said, I know I can forgive this guy for doing what he did because I know regardless of my situation, regardless of my condition, God's still good. God's still able to make a way. God's still able to provide. I could be a head and not a tail. I could be a, more than a conqueror. I could be all those things he could say I could be no matter what my condition is. And I tapped off into that. So guess what? I'm confined to which I'm better now, off now than I was when I was walking. I thank God for the wheelchair. So that being said, with the process of me saying, okay, God, thank you for allowing me to be in this situation. I'm going to give you glory by forgiving this, this brother. Somebody need to hear this. Somebody had to go through the wheelchair. Somebody had to do it. And I said, God, thank you for assigning me. That was a process, though. So you're at that place in your life. You're calling everybody up. Hey, forgive me. You talk to your friend and you're like, hey, it's all forgiven. Let's just yeah. move forward. So. What was the next part of your journey? Next part of my journey after that, they tell you in the hospital, like, hey, man, you got to get a job. Get a job? No, I'm going to get my disability check. I'm going to buy me a Cadillac. I'm going to put me some rims on it. And I'm going to ride around. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to sit at home and get high and live my life. I'm like, get a job? What are you talking about? About a few years go by, you start getting that $600 a month. Kids come along, you say, I might need to seek employment. So here I am seeking employment. 2007, I go to Peace Lake Call Center. I have this equal opportunity program for disabled people. You go through the program, they try to set you up, they go do an interview with you and all that. So I went through that whole process. I completed every step. And so they went to the Peace Lake Call Center with me and said, hey, look, y'all do the interview, fill out the application. They help you fill out the application and all that. I'm in the workforce. Call me. You got the job. Of course, they were going to hire me. Peace Lake Call Center, I'm just placing orders. Mind you, I go in there with the mindset of this dude coming from the streets, hood dude, no type of skills, no communication skills at all. I started going to the job, me being who I am, determined, again, back to being loved, being challenged. I want to be the best. So I noticed this female, I noticed she was like extremely a good type of, and she was, she communicated well, she was excellent in customer service. I was like, I'm going to sit right here by her. And I watched her, how she typed, just placed her hand on the board, her hand placement. I would listen to her, I was to her and others around me. Kind of like create a listening environment for myself. And I began to peck. Trust me, you place an order. I was pecking all over the keyboard. P, D. I mean, seriously, like pecking one thing. Clueless about a keyboard. Clueless about type. I kept pressing on. I worked my butt off. Got in there, extremely competitive. Within three months, I was employee of the month. Uh, no typing skills. Around that same time, the uh, supervisor came to me. He was like, hey, I want to take a picture of you. So he comes to the house. He comes up with his camera takes a picture. Never say a word. He said, I just want to get a picture of you, man. That's all. And so lo and behold, the article come out. He posted his article saying that how I was on time with the employee, the idea employee, etc. 
had my picture in there. It was like, okay, one of the tops here is uh, this guy right here. He had a lot of faith and trust in me. Again, this happened just like that within a few months. Again, it's God. God get the glory for this. I just worked hard. Even though I was picking, I worked hard at what I did. And, uh, before I knew it, he came to me and was like, hey, look, I want you to go to the stage with us. I was like, okay, stage, of course, the supervisors. Uh, within eight months, I was promoted to supervisor with no type of skills, no communication skills. That's awesome. When did you end up at where we go to church? It was an invite back in 2016. The previous ministry, the pastor had lost his weight. Long story short, in that decision, all of, all of the saints began to migrate other places. One of the former members, hey, man, went out to this church, man, called New Life. Come check it out. I'm like, cool. I go, I went on a Wednesday night. It was like, whoa. <laughs> I'm laughing because when we first went, it was a Wednesday night. And yeah, it was, whoa. <laughs> whoa. So what is that? So what is this? I'm like, I had never experienced anything like it. It was us. It was like praise and worship. The word was, it was just refreshing and everything. Just an anointing. Just, you knew it. Like, I said, this is it. Pastor walked by. He said, hey, how you doing? I'm Pastor said, I was introduced myself. I said, this is my church home. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> he looked at me to give you a little nod and agree. He said, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Then, well, you know, you can't join. You know, that's his, that's his, you know, that's his thing. Well, you know, you can't join. And I looked like, huh? Yeah. So before, you know, he set me up on the Bible study and went through the Bible study course and, and the rest is history. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Like, yeah. Wow. wow. Yes. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? One thing I want to add to the guy that got me into the church, he passed away in 2014. He was killed because he had a struggle in his life that just couldn't overcome, but ultimately ended up costing his life. But I always, I can't share my testimony without talking about him, obviously. But I remember him having this moment. He suffered with, he struggled with cocaine. And I remember going to the neighborhood one day and he was high on cocaine. He had a moment. He had left the church. He came to me and said, man, I don't really know what to do at this point. Now, every time we go to the neighborhood, I would see him. I'm like, hey, listen, man, come on. You know what you got to do. He would see me pull up and like, man, I know this dude. So it went from him being a witness to me. And I just loved him with all my heart. And I just remember going one day. I said, man, you know what you need to do on a Saturday? Came to the car. He was high on cocaine. The other guys was around. All It was like three or four guys on the block at the time. He approached the car. And I began to, I was witnessing to the other guys. I had my Bible out and I was sharing it. And at that point, I began to pray. And like the Holy Ghost unto me was like, okay, tell him to come to the car. So at the time I'm praying, I'm like, hey, come to the car. He came to the car, I grabbed his hand, I began to pray with him. I'm like, you says he's high off cocaine. I grabbed his hand and began to pray with him. The Holy Ghost fall on him. Boom. This guy high off cocaine speaking in tongues. Right in the neighborhood in broad daylight. It was a demonstration. And that's what we need in these days and times, like a demonstration. The Holy Ghost fall on him, he speaks in tongues, off he goes, like, wow. The next day he came to the church I was attending and was rebaptized. It was just absolutely fantastic. It was a demonstration in that moment. It went from him being a witness to me to him seeing the glory of God being manifested in his life over again. And I'm I'm all I'm just thankful for everything that happened. All of my experiences is absolutely fantastic. I wouldn't take nothing for and I and I'll do it all over again if I had to. How can people reach out and help those kids that are in the inner city? What can be done to help those situations. I think the, the opportunity be there if you uh, teach them a trade or some kind of way of giving back. Take advantage of an opportunity or giving back. I think that's a huge outlet. You know, that's a great avenue of full wide time. Again, building that bridge work is a challenge because they only spend a certain amount of time with you. 
And guess what? They go right back to the environment. It's their part of their economy. So it's kind of hard to build that bridge work. I think it had to be some kind of consistency in that area. Because if they're not coming in a Christian home, it's going to be like you're pulling the side over for a day or two. It's like they go right back to that environment with school system, the home, especially office, the charity started home and spread abroad. So the home matters, type of environment that they're coming in. But usually an opportunity, you just really never know. Well, casting that into the sea and you never know what you may really in. But I like I think the effort in terms of giving back, that's an opportunity where you can go in and touch them. And, and like I said, we went, as we discussed, those kids are looking for love. So that opportunity to get a chance to be loved on. They say, hey, listen, we love you, but and get them to church if you can. Use that as an opportunity to get them to church. And I think we have to inconvenience ourselves as well. That's not going to be something like a simple process. You have to inconvenience yourself and begin to go back to consistency because they just can't see you like on a Sunday, then all of a sudden they don't see you again for several weeks. You have to be consistent like every Sunday or every Saturday you spend the time with them just pouring aside them. Whether it be a phone conversation or obviously get them to church, but yeah, definitely have to be consistent. And I think too, like as a church, like maybe a church could have some type of ministry where they're reaching out to those kids. Definitely, that'd be huge. That's huge because, you know, again, they're not necessarily coming around growing up in the church environment. But they have people around them that genuinely love them and care about them. And that's what they need or something other than what they're seeing. Again, drug infested areas, they're seeing it all the time. Uncle or whomever is a drug dealer or whatever it may be, a high school dropout. There's no conversation about college. There's no conversation about endeavors and being a business owner. So they hear these conversations and what they can become. I think the most key thing, the key thing is having those that may have some experience that lifestyle because they can relate. And they kind of like myself, I know what to say. Times I've been to the juvenile detention center, I know what to say. I know what the guy's going through. I see you, man. I understand what you experience. I know what it's like. So I can identify it and I can pull aside of them. I'm coming at a different angle, though. I think it's important to have people that's suited for that, not people that's afraid to go into that environment. Because you're afraid it does the kid no good. You have to have someone that's been in that environment that's familiar with that because otherwise you're just selecting people to say, okay, let's go to this particular neighborhood and it's drug infested and people standing around and gangbangers all around. That could be intimidating. You're like, you know what? Hey, I just sent them a text or something, sent them an email. <laughs> I'm not going, you know? So, and another thing is the hope is building that bridge work with the parent, getting them involved in the Bible study, whatever it may be like building that bridge but with the hope that they come as well. So it, it's, it's a process, but I think you got to remain patient and consistent in that process. I appreciate that because I think people need, do need to know that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. As we wrap up today, I just want you to speak to that person out there that is struggling, that is going through some of the same stuff you've been through. Just talk to that person. I would say don't give up. Look at a glass half full. Try to be the best version of yourself. Know your limitations and accept your limitation. I think that's key. Accepting your limitation, accepting your condition, knowing that we serve a God that'll meet you right where you are. God don't necessarily put us in these situations. Man always tend to say, maybe they did this, it's karma. Not so much of that, but sometimes God have his way of slowing us down. I think that was my case. I didn't just freak accidents happen in life, unexpected happiness, sickness or illness or whatever, big, maybe even disease for that matter. But in the midst of it all, remember that he still loves you. His love is unconditional. His word is unfallible. It will not turn void into the earth. If you put your faith and trust in his word, his word will work if you work it. That's one of the things that I learned. Just adhere to his word and I stick to it. It said, we'll be done on earth as it is in the heaven. So meaning he already got a blueprint for us. So there's a heavenly template he has for us. I want to try to live out that heavenly template, knowing that 
Everything that I've been through here has brought me this far, not able to speak, wearing a halo on my head, unforgiveness, drug addiction. I was addicted to cocaine at, in my teenage years. He uprooted all that, and God is capable of doing it. He's not a suppressing God. He's an uprooting God. So you're uprooted, it cannot come back. It's gone, and no longer will have life. I think it's most important to put faith and trust in him. He must be the foundation. He must be the cornerstone of all that we do. Will you stumble along the way? Will you have your days? Absolutely. But he's there for you. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Now, I manage a customer service department at a multi-million dollar company. From a guy that has no type of skills, no communication skills, to now being a manager of a multi-million dollar company, customer service. Sky the limit. I uh, never thought and never saw myself in this situation. But when God came along, he gave me a new vision, a new perspective. So ask for help. He's there for you. God will not tell him to you to your cry. He did it for me. He'll do it for you. He's no respecter person. So most importantly, put your faith and trust in him. There's no such thing as a bad prayer. The only bad prayer is one that's not prayed. I definitely suggest that if, if you don't have a church home, get a church home. It's important. You get a church home and get your preacher. We all need a pastor in our life. Someone that pull inside of us and preach to us so we can give us direction. Here's our hope. Give me Jesus. I suggest, hey, go out to Jesus. Everything else to take care of itself. I have enjoyed this interview, talking with you. All through it, I've just like had goosebumps. Like The hair on my arms is like standing up. So powerful. And I'm just so thankful for how God has worked in your life. I mean, it shines through. It really does. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's my pleasure, sis. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, until next time, everybody, have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment, or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.